ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Люди маска. Hi everyone. About two weeks ago, I had the pleasure of being on This Is Hell, one of my favorite left-wing podcasts. And Chuck and his crew were kind enough to let me repurpose the interview as part of the SRB podcast. But before I get to the interview, I want to remind you that if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. The SRB podcast is a one-guy operation, and your support helps keep it going by paying server costs, equipment, and promotion. Plus, there's also a little something for me for reading books like I was in grad school again. You can find a link to my Patreon site at seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the interview. If Putin is Trump, then how can Putin's leading opponent also be Trump? Are these protests a major turning point in Russian history? Here to help us figure out what the hell is happening in Russia podcaster Sean Guillory of Sean's Russia blog. He has a PhD in Russian history at UCLA. His writing has appeared in Open Democracy, The Nation, N Plus One Magazine, and The New Republic. You can follow him on Twitter at Sean's Russia blog, and you can go to his website to see his podcast as well as some of his writing from the past, seansrussiablog.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sean. Hey, Chuck. How are you? Thanks for having me. We are celebrating 21 years of listener support for This Is Hell today. All our guests were suggested by our listening audience. Here's the email from Kim A. asking us to have you on our show. I recommend a great blog podcast called The Sean Russia Blog. He interviews Russia reachers on all angles of Russian. This interview linked below was particularly interesting. This lady is articulate. Sophie Pinkham, her latest book, Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine. And we're going to ask Sophie to be on the show, but Kim wasn't Good. the only one who had uh, <clears throat> requested you being on the show. So we had so many asking wow. us to have you on the show, but she had done it multiple times. So that's why we're having you on today. But on your most recent podcast, you interview sociologist and contemporary historian Misha Gabovich, a member of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany, uh, specializing in the study of protests and social movements in Russia, as well as Soviet war memorials. Misha is the author of a book called Protest in Putin's Russia. How big of a deal are these past uh, two protests, the one in March, another one now in June, both with tens to maybe even 100,000 people. I'm not too sure. How big of a deal were these protests in June uh, and and in March? How big of a deal is this? Um, you know, with protests in Russia, it's always hard to say, right, because they come in ebbs and flows. I mean, we saw a major protest wave in 2011, end of 2011 into almost 2013, and then it pretty much kind of died down. Um, but these, nevertheless, they are significant for a couple of reasons. First off, they, unlike the protests in 2011, 2012, these were around in over 80 cities, up to 100 cities around the Russian Federation. And the fact that one of the problems that political opposition has had in Russia in general is how to get people who live out in the provinces to, um, you know, graft onto their message, to hear their message. And one of the, the, the amazing things that Navalny has been able to do with his anti-corruption stuff is that he has been able to mobilize people to come out in small and medium-sized provincial cities around the country. And what's interesting about them, too, is that in a lot of these local protests, it's local grievances. So they take the overarching problem of corruption and they, they articulate it according to their own local grievances. So it's not necessarily 
you know, people are coming out because of Navalny, but their political issues aren't necessarily of him. Then these so, pro- and, and, these protests then that are happening all over the country, they're not as unified in their message and what they're protesting as maybe the New York Times or establishment media would be suggesting they are within their narrative. I mean, they are unified in the sense that they are answering a call from Alexei Navalny in Moscow. Um, and they are, in a sense, it's for the most part aligned in the uh, a sense of you know, anti-corruption. Um, but the messages, you know, like I said, are local. And I think what's also significant about them is that it's showing a, an increase of the politicization of Russian society that's been really developing over the last year or two since the economic crisis. Uh, has really started to hit regular Russians' wallets. So, you know, uh, the standard of living has gone down. Poverty has increased. Uh, the buying power of the ruble has slid. Uh, real income is going down. So if people look at, and see the opulence of government officials, people around Putin, whether they're in the, the center of the country or in their own local region, and the corruption, of course, bega- becomes a more galvanizing issue. So is this more about ethics or is this more about economics, these protests? Are, are, are they about, hey, look, my uh, bottom line is not doing really well. Or is this more about being upset with the ethical and moral issue of corruption? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I would say more the former than the latter. And and this is what's interesting, because most protests in Russia in the past, at least the larger ones, um, you know, the, the parliament and the parliamentary uh, rigged elections in 2011 being the best example, they the Russian opposition tend to focus mostly on political rights, right, on issues of democracy, on issues of human rights. And what these anti-corruption protests have done is that they've they signified somewhat of a shift to a more social economic base. That's certainly certainly mixed up with ethics and morals because it's also based on a certain moral economy and the sense that now, you know, that I'm living in a provincial town, there's it's hard to find good work. That's my standard of living, which had been previously doing better, say, 10 years ago, is now not doing as well. It, it, you know, one of the, the social contracts of the Putin system in the mid 2000s was one of you know, economic stability, economic growth, you know, providing a life for enough Russians for a middle class as a middle class life, the ability to afford to travel abroad for vacation, things like this, and for basically political passivity. But what we're what we're seeing now is that that social contract is is gradually breaking down. How much re- is that social con- how much is that social contract breaking down? Not maybe necessarily because of Putin's policies, but possibly due to external uh, situations like uh, the Western sanctions against Russia or maybe an internal problem like some uh, natural problem, uh, some natural disaster that may have caused some sort of economic uh, uh, downturn. Is, is this it, which one is this? Well, it's, it's I would say less sanctions um, and more the, the collapse of the oil price. Because forty uh, percent of the Russian state budget is based on the price of oil, and in the two thousands, when there was a, a flush of very high oil prices, they were able to divert 
a lot of money to, say, you know, social welfare, infrastructure, things like this, and, and also be able to do this and still maintain a level of corruption, right? Even though they had levels of, you know, high levels of corruption, you still were able to, you know, rebuild cities and things like this. Now you have austerity. So, you know, you have things like the Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, you know, be confronted with pensioners in Crimea almost a year ago and him just flat, you know, complaining, these old people complaining about how their pensions, they can't live on their pensions and things like this. And him basically saying, you know, there's no money. Hang in there. Right. And people see this and that sense of that moral economy or, or that social contract as as much as it was, you know, openly articulated begins to break down. And I, I think this is the problem. And, and the other problem is, is that the Russian government isn't necessarily offering a way out because they they have oil and oil is not working for them at this very moment. But they also have the problem of corruption where the system itself, Putin's power is based on allowing a segment of the elites to engage in widespread corruption. Is there a sense in Russia of some Western conspiracy to keep oil prices down in order to crush Russia, to punish them for having Putin? Is there is there that kind of a conspiracy theory sense within Russia? There is, you know, I think that sometimes this idea has been peddled out. I haven't seen it that consistent. Right. Um, there is a general sense that, you know, the the government tries to paint a picture that Russia is some sort of besieged fortress by enemies. But I think like in most countries, most Russians are mostly concerned about the, their everyday lives, you know, their family, their children, their friends. Um, and this type of stuff, I don't think actually bleeds too far into their consciousness. I mean, it may certainly hover out there as a, you know, discursive frame, but I don't think it actually, um, you know, makes them think that their everyday problems of the Russian economy is is solely located in some sort of conspiracy. In your interview with the contemporary historian Misha Gabovich, uh, Misha said that many protesters have an issue with the label of the opposition. Why? I thought the protests were in opposition to Putin. <laughs> Well, they they are and they aren't. I mean, you know, you can, of course, when you get down to the individual level, it could be all sorts of things. Um, one of the problems is, is that the opposition, you know, capital O opposition, um, has an image problem, uh, particularly the, the older generation of, of the opposition, the more liberal-minded oppositionists that came out of the 1990s. Now, they're less and less uh, center stage, um, and I think Navalny is a, one of the examples of that generational shift. He doesn't have any ties to the 1990s. But most people see the politics that liberals, Russian liberals coming from the 1990s were articulating as essentially failed policies, which are basically, you know, free market, Western style democracy, things like this. Um, and the other problem is, is that politics in Russia if you protest, and you can see this in labor protests, for example, labor protests, they will appeal to, you know, the employer, they'll complain about local politicians, and sometimes quite strategically, they'll appeal to Putin as someone who should come in and, and fix the situation. And if you engage in an outright political protest, then that invites more trouble upon you than otherwise. 
because then they could label you, say, an agent of the West. They can label you, you know, they can connect you to the opposition in Moscow, these liberal figures that are kind of demonized repeatedly on off and on. They could even connect you with somebody like Navalny, who is under constant not only threat of imprisonment, uh, but also just being blackballed and in, in, in blackened in the media. So, you know, politics in Russia is dangerous, but using grievances to appeal to the government or to appeal to authorities isn't necessarily dangerous, depending on what you're appealing about and the sensitivity of the issue you're, you're, you have a grievance with. The New York Times reported that, quote, in Moscow, the police arrested the Kremlin foe and anti-corruption crusader Alexei A. Navalny, the main architect of the protests on, uh, in June and similar ones in March, as he left his apartment to attend the demonstration downtown. A Moscow court quickly sentenced him to 30 days in jail for organizing an unauthorized protest. The recent outpourings of popular discontent spurred on by Mr. Navalny have been the biggest anti-government demonstration in Russia in years. I'm always afraid when the media puts too much focus on an individual (laughs) and not discuss the issues. And in this New York Times article, it took them till maybe paragraph 20 to tell you what the actual issues are. Often at the New York Times, they'll tell you the number of people at the protest, what the protest was like, tell you about violence, tell you about whatever's happening at the protest, except what they're actually protesting. And too often the news is about celebrities because the news is full of people who want to be celebrities. So how much are these protests about Navalny? And how much are these about the bigger bigger issues, things like corruption? Uh, like I said, I think that people are responding to his call, but not necessarily coming out because of him. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of complicated situation. Because like I said, when people protest, they make it about, most of the time, they make it about their own um, individual issues. Now, the issue with the protest in Moscow in June, the one where he pretty much unilaterally called for the protest to shift from a place called called um, Sakharov to the center of Moscow, right in the middle of the main drag in Moscow, um, that, from many people in Russia, in opposition circles, see that as a mistake on two parts. First is, one, he made that decision unilaterally, so there's a question of kind of democratic decision-making in this movement, but also that protest in um, Sakharov included people who were protesting against the plan by the Moscow authorities to force relocate 1.6 million people under the auspices of a housing renovation, where they're going to destroy these old buildings um, built during the Khrushchev era and uh, force people to move elsewhere. And then, you know, I'm, it's certainly connected to various real estate deals on developers, I'm sure, and build new housing there for who knows what. So that split in that movement, that split in that per- protest in Moscow in particular, I think it is in one sense a strategic problem because then it, it, it separated that issue from each other, from, from Navalny and the housing renovation, which is a big issue. So, you know, like I said, people come out because of Navalny's call, because his, his uh, expose on the, the prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, had a lot of resonance, but they use that space to articulate their own grievances. The New York Times and other outlets are going to great lengths to report that this is a youth 
youth-led movement. How much is this a youth movement exclusively? And if it is a youth movement, do the youth in Russia today have any political power? Um, I wouldn't say it's an exclusively youth movement. There definitely is a large concentration of young people, particularly teenagers and people into their young, you know, early 20s. But at the same time, you know, in a lot of these Western reports about protests in Russia, there is a tendency to try to find to locate the new revolutionary subject. Right. There is an attempt to say, so, for example, in 2011, it was the creative class was the new revolutionary subject. Um, now there is a, a hold on the youth as the new revolutionary subject. And young people in Russia, no, they don't have any political power, but many people don't have any political power. So it's no reason why they would have any more than others. Um, but I think at the same time, the reason why most people have kind of grasped onto this is because a lot of the young people who are protesting have known no other political leadership except for Putin in his circle. So people see the rejection of that as some indication of a glimmer of hope for the future. Now, whether that will happen or not, we don't know, because as we know, once people get older and settle into their you know, nice bourgeois whatever life, uh, their concerns become different. And that young energy doesn't necessarily always play out the same way. You call Putin's system an essentially feudal system. Earlier on this week's show, we were talking to writer Adele Stan about her work at The Baffler and what she calls dark dollars, an extension of Jane Mayer's dark money analysis of election campaign donations. Dark dollars is the money and wealth that exists privately outside of any oversight. How uh, how actions, and she also talked about how actions by the uh, Trump organization being private fall into that dark money realm. How much does Putin's essentially feudal system deal in the world of wealth and earnings made without any oversight to the public? I think a large portion of it does. Um, And it works like this. You know, corruption in Russia is both carrot and stick. So it's a carrot because it ensures Putin and his close circle loyalty from the, the larger, wider elite in Russia. Um, but at the same time, Putin may be fine with them stealing. The question is always how much. So the, the stick of corruption comes in when he wants to redefine the, pa- the parameters of acceptable theft. So, for example, right now in this current economic condition, conditions, there's been some pretty, I wouldn't say they're high profile corruption cases, but they've arrested governors and they've arrested other kind of top officials in, in the regional government. Uh, for corruption. They've arrested a couple, some business people for corruption. Um, and, and this is essentially a way to redefine the parameters of how much you can steal. So the issue is steal, but not too much. And then when we redefine what those parameters are, you need to abide by them. Also, the reason why I called it a more feudal structure is because the very, very wealthy in Russia, you know, the multimillionaires, their wealth is contingent upon Putin and his circle. Because if they want to take it, they can. If they want to arrest you, they can. And they show them that they can. And that means when they call upon you for service, like, for example, in the Sochi Olympics, where a lot of these multi-billionaires were, multi-millionaires were called to invest in construction, you have to do it, even at a loss. So this is kind of how it works. And a lot of this has zero scrutiny in the public. I mean, this is why I think... 
uh, Navalny's expose on Medvedev was so effective because Medvedev has this image of kind of being a good guy. He's the good cop to Putin being the bad cop. And the fact that he was exposed to basically be not a prince among thieves, but a thief amongst more thieves, really kind of shock, put a shock down to that system and showed the, the sheer lack of transparency and how very, very wealthy people in Russia accumulate their wealth, reproduce their wealth, and maintain it. On the Sean's Russia blog Facebook page, you link to a story from the Atlantic headlined, what exactly are Kremlin ties? What the, was the lawyer who met Donald Trump Jr. an agent of Moscow or not? A little bit of both, maybe, by Mark Galliotti. And you write in response to Mark's story, quote, there's a lot of this I agree with here, especially Mark's point about deinstitutionalization, the importance of being in Putin's orbit, usefulness more important than position, the notion of adhocracy, a great term, and the entrepreneurial nature of Russian politics. So is the Russian government of Vladimir Putin just a gigantic money-making scheme? Um, I wouldn't put it in those simple terms, though money certainly plays a very big role in all of this. Um, it certainly, I don't think we can put aside the power of patriotism, the power for the Russian elite for great power status on a global stage. Um, I think it's important for us to understand Putin as a representative of a particular class in Russia. Uh, that class, of course, isn't always unified, but it's a class nonetheless. And I think a lot of the moves upon you know, Russia on the world stage or even domestically reflects the mentality of that class more than one person. So it's about money, yeah, but it's about much more. Um, I don't think that these people can step outside the ideological frameworks and the cultural frameworks. They exist no, no different than, say, American politicians. One of the things that people are saying, or some are at least arguing, is that uh, Donald Trump is something unique within Republican politics, that he is an anomaly when it looks like all of the programs and policies that he's pushing forward seem to be very much within the Republican Party platform. In Russia, is Putin more Russia being Russian than an anomaly to Russian history? I don't think he's an anomaly in Russian history at all. Um, I do think that the, the issue of being Russian is a, is a complicated one. But I do think one of the things that the Putin system and, and one of its pillars of reestablishing Russia is uh, to the creation of or the recreation of the sense of what it doesn't mean to be Russian today. Because if you think of it in the Soviet period, though Russian culture, Russian language, Russian history and Russians themselves were the first among nations, Russian nationalism itself was suppressed. And it was a very touchy subject. And, and Russian nationalism continues to be a very touchy subject in Russia. I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't characterize Putin as a Russian nationalist because he's not an ethno-nationalist. Um, and the regime is quite harsh on ethno-national, Russian ethno-nationalists. But at the same time, because after the Soviet collapse, the question becomes, well, who are we now? Because we can't be Soviet anymore. So, okay, so what does it mean to be Russian? And I think one, a lot of the issues with history, a lot of the development of the, the World War II cult, a lot of the rehabilitation of, say, imperial figures, 
the effort of Russian history being narrated as a great continuum rather than a series of breaks, as something where the Russian state is eternal from, say, 900 to the present, regardless of all of the calamities, is an attempt to reestablish that Russianness, the effort, this push for so-called traditional values, the, the reemergence of the Russian Orthodox Church. All of this, I think, is an attempt to redefine that post, post-Soviet identity. So is anybody that the media might be linking between Trump and Putin? I mean, as long as you are talking to somebody in Russia, you're essentially talking to somebody who has some <laughs> connection with Putin, correct? Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is part of, I think, based on a fantasy or not a fantasy, but a, how Americans imagine Russia as this giant, you know, police state right. where everybody is compromising, connected to, uh, you know, the security services or Putin, which is actually quite a really funny because one of the things that is so difficult about understanding Russian high politics is how opaque it is. And so to presume that all of these people are and secretive, actually, how secretive this circle of small circle of people are. So to assume that all of these people are somehow part of the operation, I mean, it's a it's a little ridiculous in many ways. I mean, some people are looking out for their own uh, issues. I think this meeting with uh, this lawyer, Natalia Vasilenskaya, was very much about the client she represents whose property was seized by the U.S. government, part of this uh, corruption scandal, this Magnitsky case, the fact that they didn't want it to go to trial because it would expose an international network of money, Russian money laundering, things like this. But, you know, getting rid of the lobbying against the Magnitsky Act also coincides with Russian state interests. But does that mean that she's sent by Putin or sent by Putin's circle? No. I mean, people's interests can align with the state for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think that, you know, Trump Jr., it's kind of revealed that he's somewhat of an imbecile, um, was basically scammed. Uh, they, they dangled anti, you know, anti-Clinton information in front of his face to get their foot in the door, and they didn't have anything, or at least didn't give what they had. And they used the opportunity to lo- do some preemptive lobbying around the Magnitsky Act. You- and they got nowhere. You also link to an article on Facebook uh, that's from Jacobin by Per Leander and Alexei Saknin called Russia's Trump. The movement in Russia against Putin's authoritarian government is dominated by one man, the right wing populist Alexei, Alexei Navalny. Now, you disagree with making this kind of comparison between Navalny and Trump. What kind of misunderstandings might this type of reading lead to? especially among the left, because this is in Jacobin magazine, when it comes to Navalny and his challenge to Putin. Yeah, I have uh, um, uh, me and a few uh, Russian comrades leftists in Russia um, just submitted a response to that in the Jacobin, and hopefully it will be out soon. Um, But essentially, I mean, on the very first surface of it, I mean, take both men's class position. (laughs) You know, Trump is of the American elite in terms of wealth. Alexei Navalny doesn't even approach that. I mean, he's not even, in terms of personal wealth, um, even close to Trump. Um, yeah, Alexei Navalny has nationalist tendencies, and his, his Russian ethno-Russian nationalism is an issue, and it is something that deserves and requires criticism. Um, 
he definitely has spoken out consistently against immigration, particularly from the Caucasus and Central Asia. I mean, we shouldn't um, discount that and we shouldn't try to, you know, brush that off. But at the same time, um, his populism, if you want to call it that, you know, I think this is this is nothing more than somewhat of a slander because all the things that he's done finally, I mean, one of the, the, the major problems with Navalny in all the years he's been operating is that he hasn't made that crossover to some sort of social economic issues. Now, he's definitely pro-market. He's definitely um, small, you know, wants to develop small business and all of this stuff. He's not anti-capitalist in any sense of the word. But nonetheless, his politics and his anti-corruption crusade and his increasing popularity, particularly amongst young people in Russia, have opened up a lot of important spaces for Russian leftists to, you know, be a part of. You know, because one of the things you have as a result of the politicization of Russian society is you have more people willing to get involved in politics as such. So, for example, you have Russian leftists uh, running for municipal elections in Moscow and other places. Um, you have a population that's more susceptible to talk about politics, to take it seriously. Um, and also, too, Navalny is not the locus of all protest or oppositional activity in Russia. You have labor protests. You have ecological movements. A lot of them are localized and diffused, but they exist nonetheless. They, you have this major protest against the renovations in Moscow. You have a major protest in St. Petersburg against handing over St. Sophia Cathedral to the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, all of this as a, I think should be looked at as a whole. And while Navalny is certainly the most important player, individual politician on the opposition side in Russia today, he is not the total sum of it, nor should he be, if we want to speak about a Russia that is democratized and also has some kind of social justice. But that Jacobin article not only has Trump as Navalny, or Navalny as Trump, but they also have uh, jail political activist Sergei Udaltsov as Bernie Sanders. So is Udaltsov Sanders and how are we misled and what are we led into believing that is inaccurate about what's happening within Russia when we make this simple analogy of Udaltsov being Sanders? Well, I mean, one of the problems is that Sergei Udaltsov is in prison. I mean, he gets out, I think, in two months, and he's been in prison, though, for, I think, three, almost four years now. Right. So we don't know what Odeltsov will be when he comes out. Um, in 2011, 2012, there was some talk of the Russian Communist Party finally, um, you know, getting rid of its old crusty guard and maybe putting Odeltsov as the head of the Communist Party, but that didn't happen. Instead, he went to prison. So, you know, yeah... You could say because Udaltsov is on the left and he's more connected to communist circles, he's the, certainly, you know, if you want to put American labels closer to a Bernie Sanders than you know, Alexei Navalny is. But, I mean, these kinds of American labels don't work in the Russian context very well. I mean, this is a projection, I think, of, of tropes that don't really translate very well to the Russian situation. And that seems to be you a bigger, know, Sean, that seems to be a bigger problem just in general. And, in I, general. And, I, and I'll admit that I've had this problem in the past too. It's hard to take yourself out of 
the understanding that you have domestically of your politics. It's hard to separate yourself from that when you're thinking about another country. Yeah, yeah. And and I think Americans, particularly because Americans, I think, tend to see the world through narcissistic lens, regardless of whether they're on the left or the right. Um, and so, you know, there is and also there's also the tendency to, you know, what Americans asking themselves, so why should I care? Right. So right. the best way to kind of care is to translate it into an American idiom. And that uh. happens with Russia all the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One last question for you, Sean. We've been speaking with Sean Guillory of Sean's Russia blog. He has a Ph.D. in Russian history at UCLA. His writing has appeared in Open Democracy, The Nation, N Plus One Magazine, and The New Republic. You can follow him on Twitter at Sean's Russia blog, and you can go to his website, seansrussiablog.org. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I have a feeling that if our audience is in Russia right now, by the way, we are airing on uh, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. So that's kind of close. <laughs> you write, incidentally, the uh, Soviet and the Tsarist system operated along similar feudalistic and personalistic lines as Putin, where trusted individuals were given purview over certain tasks and operations, as well as obliged to serve when called upon. So on this, the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, is Russia back where it started? <laughs> that always assumes if it's ever left. Good um, point. Very good point. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, try to understand Russia as, you know, historically inert, right? Even though there are certain tendencies in Russian politics that I think have persisted, um, it's not like the place hasn't changed, particularly in the last 100 years. So uh, in that sense, I, I and I certainly wouldn't put forward the idea that Russia is going back to something in the past because, well, it can't. Um, you know, the historical conditions just aren't such to, say, recreate the Soviet system and certainly not recreate the imperial system. Um, but nonetheless, I do think that one of the problems in trying to understand Russia today and, partic- and Putin and Putinism in particular is to separate that system as some sort of anomaly um, and not try to place it within the long continuum of Russian history. I mean, take Putin's foreign policy, for example. Um, You know, it makes it's more understandable if you place it within the context of Russian foreign policy of the last 150 years, whether that's Soviet or imperial. Um, Putin's ways of governing make more sense in the context, if you put it within the history of, of governance in Russia. I mean, m- one of my main views about Russia is that it has a highly centralized state that uses coercion as one of its few mechanisms of governance, but it's an incredibly undergoverned state, partially because the center has monopolized so much power that it's atrophied the periphery, um, but also because of a persistent concern amongst Russian leaders of fragmentation of the Russian state system. So, you know, looking at the past, I think helps normalize certain aspects of Russia today, but I don't, at the same time, don't think we should totally fetishize them either. That is Sean of Sean's RussiaBlog.org. you got to check out his podcast on a regular basis. It's really fantastic if you want to know what's actually happening in Russia instead of all the 
crap that you hear on TV. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate you being hey, on the thanks show. Thanks a lot, Chuck. I love your show, too. I, it's, it's quite an honor to be on it. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. Hey, listen, uh, I'm going to bug you and have you back on the show if that's okay. Hey, whenever you want, I'm here. I'm Thank you, Sean. Anywhere. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.